Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Welcome, Tend Her Wild listeners. We are thrilled today to have a guest author with us, Catherine Winch. Catherine is a fearless leader. In her role as founder and CEO of the Mom Complex, she dedicates her life to making the lives of mothers easier while helping the largest companies in the world, such as Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, Chobani, and Baby Dove, better understand and support their mom customers and employees. In her latest venture, Catherine combines 10 plus years of groundbreaking research on motherhood with her own personal journey in her popular book, Slay Like a Mother. Parade Magazine named it one of the top 10 life-changing self-help books of the year. Wow. And Catherine's research has been featured on the Today Show, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company. She is a recipient of the Working Mother of the Year Award by the Advertising Women of New York, the Outstanding Woman Award from YWCA, and a Woman of the Decade Award from the Women's Economic Forum in India. So welcome, Catherine. Yay. We, Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. yeah. We have six kids between the two of us. How many kids do you have? Two. Two. So we are excited to have messy mother conversations <laughs> because I feel like that's what you've groundbroken, the idea that yeah. um, motherhood is really messy and we can be honest about that. So Amen. so. Yeah. Amen. So we start all of our conversations um, and I don't even know how we started this, but from the start of this podcast, we ask all the women and we've had one man actually who've come on, talk about their first 10 years. We feel like there's such a, a foundation that gets laid in those first 10 years. And then it seems to show up over and over and over throughout the course of a person's life. And uh, you actually write about um, your early things in your childhood. So I was really curious about, um, you know, you said perfectionism was this undeniable currency in my house. Um, we had the happy-go-lucky family that everyone wanted to be around. And I related so much with so many of these things. So we'd love for you to give us some insight into your first 10 years and how you started. Yeah, I love, it's a really interesting question and, and way to start. So from as long as I can remember, for as long as I can remember, I derived my self-esteem from external circumstances. So I have very vivid memories of that as a child of like bringing my report card home and just so, you know, couldn't wait to show my parents. It wasn't that I was proud of myself. It was like, I just, I, I couldn't wait for that reaction of, look, I did good. And and so, um, you know, that was a lot of my childhood was just not feeling good enough on the inside and um then kind of overachieving and performing you know on the outside in order to make up for that and along with that was raised by two extremely loving parents um who were type a perfectionist and and overachieved and and overdid most things that they took on to great success and um, work ethic and everything that that, you know, passed along to me, but it also just kind of heightened my own um, insecurities and felt like I really needed to perform in order to be loved. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how it started. Yeah. And I, I am curious about, it, it seems like, and you've, by the way, gone on and done groundbreaking research on mothers. And as a fellow researcher, I loved that so much of your work is data-driven. Um, but that, I mean, it sounds like for you growing up, there was a lot of love. And yet there was still this drive that somehow I, the only way I'm worthy of receiving the love is to achieve and to do well. 
Um, did you find some of that in your research as well? Is this because it to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that's my story too. And me too. They <laughs> would say that's their story too. So yeah. what 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 is this about that even if we are receiving love, we still somehow don't feel we're worthy of it. And so we have to be super women um to somehow feel like we're worthy of getting love. Yeah. Well, according to my research, 75% of the time, a woman's self-doubt or her dragon of self-doubt, as I say in the book, is born during or before adolescence. And so, you know, it's very likely that when you were a teenager or younger, um, something hurt you and something affected you and kind of sidelined your self-esteem, you know, and it cut you hard and it hurt deep. And um, for most women, it's kind of a line in the sand. Like I remember loving myself before then or liking myself. And then I remember having to the the need to hustle so hard in order to be loved. Um, so I do think it starts really young and it honestly can be brought on by anything, which just shows how universal it is. So there's really, it's very hard to avoid it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so, you know, I've interviewed women that said I was the youngest person in my grade, you know, all throughout school. And I felt so dumb because I was the youngest and, you know, could I keep up where a woman sitting right next to her will say, I was the oldest kid in my grade growing up. And I felt dumb because I was the (laughs) oldest. And, um, and so it really can come from, any place it's mostly our interpretation of what happens you know around us and it's the internalization of those circumstances that they were somehow our fault so what is it avoidable i guess i'd love to know from your research is it really just inevitable for women or are we do you think there's change happening where um we are evolving um away from maybe the external need or is it, is it really just something that, um, cause I, we have both have daughters and we think about it is th- are things better for them? Like, I, I think it's still up in the air and I don't, I just, I'm curious what you think about kind of the inevitability of this. I, I do think it's inevitable that your self-esteem is going to take a hit, you know, at some point and certainly during the teenage years. I mean, that I just I do think that that's unavoidable in some ways. But I think with our children and especially with our daughters, we can give them the tools to be able to talk about it. So a lot of times we're raised in homes where everything's perfect. It's just smile and nod. We don't talk about bad things. We don't talk about difficult things. And my belief is that dragons of self-doubt really thrive in silence and darkness and avoidance. And so if your children can have the language and the tools to say, gosh, this negative self-talk is like, I'm really yelling at myself all the time. If they can give voice to that, then it will reduce the effect of what I do believe is inevitable. And they don't have to wait until they're 50 or yeah. late 40s to like have these conversations <laughs> and realizations. Yeah. And maybe that's how it's changing that, that, you know, our generation, maybe it was something that wasn't talked about. I certainly also was raised in a home too, where the the negative stuff we didn't necessarily focus on. And so when you're having those negative feelings inside, it does feel like there's something wrong with you, whereas clearly it's just a human experience. So I love the idea of, just creating a space where we talk about it with our children and that, that and a great negative voice is normal. Yep. And a great way to do that. I talk about this in the book is um, really regardless of the age of your child. I mean, they'd have to be over, you know, three years old, but um, is at the end of the day, normally that's how we do it in our family um, is to share the peak in the pit of everyone's day. So everyone has to go around, you know, um, you know, we kind of do it at bedtime, but what was your peak in your pit? Meaning what was the best part of your day? And what was the worst part of your day? And I tend to do this one-on-one with each one of my children. And what it will teach your children is that a, every day has a part that sucks every day. Like we're going to do this exercise tomorrow and the next day and every day is going to have a pit, something that was not good, you know? And then secondly, that their mother has pits and their mother has hard times and their mother can talk about it and ask you about yours. And so it takes less than two minutes to do this, you know, but 
it's really um it's what it's really doing is teaching your children that it's okay to voice the hard times and it's it is it's harder today for children and teenagers and social media and my god it's just so much coming at them yeah it's a lot i do we talk on on this uh, podcast a lot about the dark and the light and how they can coexist and so i think the earlier too that you can recognize their you know joy and sorrow can exist at the same time um it does make walking through life and and dealing with these experiences um, a little bit softer because you, you can, they can both exist. You can have joy and then turn around and have sorrow and, and, mm-hmm. and recognize both of those things. Yeah. yeah. So I would love for you to tell our listener listeners about, um, I want to say it's called the breaking point. We've called it in this podcast, the dark night of the soul, the midlife awakening. I mean, there's so many variations of how we might talk about it. And it, to me, it feels universal. Like, I don't think anyone gets out without going through something that has the potential to awaken you. And of course, some people choose to go back to sleep, but tell us your story of um, when you started to slay your own inner dragons, as you talked about in your book and what, what led to that. Yeah. So I had lived with this dragon of self-doubt for 20 years from age 15 to 35. And I was at the point in my career, which is where I derived my self-esteem was in my career and professional accomplishments. Um, I was reaching a lot of levels. People were very proud of me. I was kind of collecting the trappings of success and I just felt like I should be happier, but I still felt pretty hollow and empty. I was always hustling so hard. And at that time working 80 hours a week. And so I couldn't really figure out, you know, exactly what was wrong. But, um, one night I was cooking dinner and I was talking to my husband. He was like, you seem down. And I said, I'm just so tired of trying to be a good wife, a good mother, a good employee, you know, all at the same time, like it's just so much. And he looked at me and he said, Catherine, what just be what's wrong with being you? Like, just be you. And and I and there was this voice in my head immediately (laughs) responded and said, I don't like me. Like it was instant. He was like, what is so wrong with just being you? And I was like, I don't like me. And I didn't say it out loud, just in my mind. You surprised by the voice? Like, was it? Yes. I was like, whoa. And it was my voice. And it was so clear. Like, it was undeniable. It wasn't like a whisper. It was like, it was just instantaneous. And so in that moment, I chose to not run from it and not run away. I just became very curious. I was like, wow, with all that I have in life, you know, and all that I've achieved, like, why would I not like myself? It was like a mystery to me. I was like, wow, like, let's go figure it out. And that's what sparked a lot of therapy, a lot of self-help books, a lot of Oprah episodes, a lot of red wine, (laughs) you know, what would we do without Oprah with her? Yeah. God. Yeah. Just sit on the couch and cry and watch Oprah and learn about myself. And, uh, yeah. So that was like a two year self-help journey that, that one question, you know, sparked that whole journey. And was that the beginning of you moving toward your own next career and finding your oh yes definitely so through a lot of my therapy I was gonna say I just want you to know because that's why I was very excited to talk to you too is that I just quit my job as a CEO um, for very similar reasons reaching kind of a a pivotal point and thinking okay I made it where I was supposed to make it and it's been three years COVID was part of this too for me definitely affected um kind of how I was feeling about the role and my purpose in being there during the crisis. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm so fascinated to learn kind of that tipping point for you and how you took the leap. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I, well, kudos. Um, I, I think a lot of people stay in situations that, you know, they seem so hard to get out of, but once you get out of them, it's just so freeing. And so for me, Um, I never really thought about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to spend my time because I was so busy performing and perfecting and pleasing. And so going through so much therapy, I really started to realize 
um, how I wanted to spend my time, what I wanted my life to look like, not just my career. You know, what time did I want to get home at night? What did I want to wear to work? Who, how many people did I want to work with? Like big projects, small projects. It was very, um, there's this great book, Finding Your Own North Star by Martha Beck that I read that really helped me kind of pinpoint how I wanted to spend my time. And when I looked at my previous career in the advertising industry, there was no way that I was, it's just a machine. It's just the way the industry is. You're in a client service building. It's all, I mean, client service business, you know, industry, you're just always working all the time. And so that's when I determined I just can't be in that environment anymore. That environment is not going to allow me time to read self-help books, to study myself, <laughs> excuse me. And so that's like, once I just started to believe in myself and love myself more, I was like, well, how do I, I, how do I set up a company and become an entrepreneur that'll give me not only the career I want, but the life I want. And I love how you wrote about when you were doing this, you interviewed a bunch of business owners and asked them how they set up their business and that you felt into your body what it felt like. And I I so want you to talk about this because I, as a somatic psychologist, am like such a believer in the body is your truth. And you wrote so beautifully about listening to your body. So will you tell us that process of like interviewing these people and listening to your own body? Yeah. So because I was a recovering people pleaser, I was really scared that I was going to set my company up in a way that would please other people. Like, oh, let me make it really big or let me take on a bunch of investments from other people because that seems neat, you know, or like that seems impressive. And I was scared I was going to fall into that trap. And so what I did was picked like five entrepreneurs that I really respected. And I just took them out to lunch and um, and I asked them about how they run their business. Like, do they have a board? Did they take on investors? What are their biggest challenges? I just asked them every question I could think of. And, um, and then I learned this also from Martha Beck. It's called like, she refers to it as like body compass work. And that is... So if, you know, a friend of mine was saying, and this is, these are all true stories. It was like, well, I meet with my board of directors once a quarter and they go over my plans. They see how I'm doing. And I was like, <gasps> like my whole insides were like, gross. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to report into anybody. I don't want anybody questioning my decisions. Like if I'm going to have a life, I need to be in charge, you know, and not, beholden to money and am I making you know maybe my team's miserable but we're making money you know like that's just in conflict with who I am as a human so my whole insides would like constrict you know and then somebody else is saying you know well I found really great people and I train them so I'm not in the day-to-day -day client work and I really travel all over the world now and have a great you know a lot of rest and I'm like ding 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 ding, ding. you know my heart's <laughs> like that sounds good oh okay and so, you know, the, the meeting wasn't about me asking them what they thought I should do, you know, or anything like that. It was just like, what will my intuition, my gut, um, and there's lots of research. I talk about it and say, like a mother, your gut will respond to a situation faster than your brain, you know? And so when you feel it's, I always say to everybody, the greatest test of this is if I, if I said, you're going to have another baby. And if like right then you're like, <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh. Or if you're like heart skips a beat and it's butterflies, you know, it's questions like that, that you know that you would have like a very instant reaction. And it was wonderful. So I let me guide me to the company that I wanted to start. I'm, I'm right in the middle of that process, the early stage formation and so it really does resonate when you start listening to yourself and building what feels authentic to you, you realize, or I'm realizing I have not done this since I was young, really thought about what it is I want, because I have been, you know, for years externally pleasing and, and looking at for what society says I should want next. So it's, it's very foreign, but also feels like coming home a little bit for me. Like, oh, this is like, this is actually where I should have always been making decisions from. But it is really, I think for women, and I, I in my 
previous role, worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and women. And I think that is sometimes where the, the confidence piece and all that's wrapped up in because we're, we're not, we're not comfortable just thinking about what it is we want. What do we want to build? Um, and so, um, I also think there's power in lifting each other up and having lunch with others that are going through this process and not feeling alone in that because, um, uh, we have to support each other's authenticity yeah. in, in building too. So thank you for sharing that. You know, what I'm curious about is how long it takes to detox off of people pleasing <laughs> and, um, perfectionism and, you know, we, we have had so many conversations about this and I'll say like, well, I'm recovered. And then something else will happen and be like, I'm not recovered. I'm still pleasing everyone. Like, so just, you've been so conscious about trying to move away from those dragons. Like, <laughs> do you recover or is it sort of like, you just, I think improve. you evolve. I think you evolve. you evolve. Um, and, you know, I think there's always going to be some sense of doubt and things that we question or, you know, we want to do really well on. So, um, you know, it may not always be as as black and white, but I think what's remarkable is like the shift that has to occur is from living a very externally focused life to an internally focused life. So a lot of perfectionism is coming because you have an external view. Like you're saying, well, if I don't volunteer for this church committee, everybody's going to think I suck. If I don't do this, if my house isn't clean. And 99% of the time, it's what someone else is going to think about you. And, and so that's really the shift. And so once I turned the lens inside and started making business decisions about what, you know, my heart and soul and gut was saying, instead of the outside world, I saw that they were always the right decision. <laughs> you know, I never regretted following my gut or following my, what my soul was telling me I needed to do. And so I think that just really, for me, at least it took the edges off the perfectionism because I'm simply not trying to impress other people anymore. It's just not part of my currency. And if they are impressed, that's wonderful. They certainly don't know my whole life and how much tequila I drink and the whole other sides of me, you know? So, you know, what are people really impressed by with anything? You don't really know anybody's like whole story. So, um, but yeah, I think it's an evolution and it just starts to feel so good that I just can't imagine living that way. You know, again, and that's another beautiful thing is you were saying, you know, that or a lot of people say, I wish I learned it earlier or, you know, but the good news is once you learn to live from the inside and not the outside, you will never go back. Like, yeah, it's like you've reached the promised land. And again, nothing's perfect. Life still it sucks in many ways a lot, but um, you're just not driven by external approval and it's so much lighter. Yeah, You can't unsee it. Can't you can't, you can't unsee it. Way, yeah. yeah. You wrote that you realized at one point that the hole that you felt inside wasn't a lack of happiness, but a lack of freedom. And I ooh, so resonated with that. Um, and I'd love for us to unpack that because I think many women can look at their lives and there are these veins of happiness. It's not like you're unhappy all the time. And so it feels like, well, <clears throat> you know, why, why am I struggling? Cause I'm happy with my spouse or my home is beautiful or whatever. So that, that statement, it was a lack of freedom, not a lack of happiness was like my eyes and my heart, my whole body turned on. So can we talk about that more? Um, that it's not a search yeah. for happiness, but a search for freedom. Yeah, that I have my husband to thank for that because he used to come to some of the speeches I would give and I would say on stage that for 20 years of my life I was successful but I was unhappy. And um and one day he stopped me and he questioned me on it and he said, "You say very often that for 20 years you were unhappy, but was it really that you were unhappy like you appeared happy and you had a lot of things in your life and that were very positive, not just like the trappings?" And, um, and he said, sometimes it makes me feel bad when you say that, because for 10 years of the 20 years, I was by your side. And I thought, oh, God, I think I actually was happy some of that, you know, so I really started to investigate it. And then it just came to me that it was this lack of freedom of 
you know, this ball and chain of what everybody thinks of me and how I'm going to perform and the next promotion and the next thing. And that I was just trapped. I really felt trapped at the time. And um, people always ask me now, like, you know, life after, you know, slaying your dragon of self-doubt, like, how does it feel? And I can only say that I just feel free and not from free from all pain and, you know, all struggles, certainly not, but I feel lighter and freer and, um, you know, dealing with the chaos around you becomes a lot easier when you're not also dealing with the chaos inside of you. Mm. So if you can just eliminate the war that's happening inside of you, you still have to fight the war around you. But when you're not fighting on both fronts, mm. it's very freeing. Yeah. And also, I love your word of, you know, feeling lighter it is so heavy to carry that around and then try to deal with the world, right? Because you're, you're having the internal struggle and then you're right. I mean, it, we're living in really challenging times. And so the more, and I think that's why people are searching for something better. And, it, and we talk a lot about how the work all starts inside. It, it starts within um, because you, that has to come for you to be able to, I think for people to really be able to handle kind of the times we're living in, in a, in a, a softer, gentler way, because it's, it, there's a lot coming at us. And, and I think again, with our daughters and young people, the sooner they can, you know, have some of those tools and internal understanding and, and the freedom, like you say, of, you know, yeah, releasing that self-doubt, um, it, it's going to make their lives easier too. So, um, yeah. Well, I love that you use the word weight. And I think that's exactly what it is and what is heartbreaking is so many women carry around so much weight that is lies that they tell themselves. Like it's not even true. And so an example of this is a guy I heard give a speech many years ago. His mother was like 85 at the time and um, was ailing in health. And she said to him, I just feel so guilty that I worked so much when you were growing up and I have all this guilt that I wasn't around. And he said, mom, I thought you were a rock star. So all this guilt and doubt that she was carrying around at the age of 85 was not his lived experience or perception. It was the opposite. He thought his mother was a star. And so it just, it's just heartbreaking of how much pain and self-doubt that we carry around. That is not the way the world sees us. We see ourselves that way which causes us to overperform and be a perfectionist to make up for the deficit. But um, yeah, it's certainly, it all starts within, it ends within, like it's, that's where the battle is. Totally. And, and specifically with your work with women, I mean, you've done all this research, you do lots of trainings and, and speeches with women how do you think the the woman's path is is different than the men's, right? I mean, we have that conversation a lot about patriarchy. It's a real thing, right? And we've all been raised under it and we've all been conditioned and it's just the story we live with. Um, and so as women are starting to rise, I mean, I think that was part of the point of our rewilding uh, podcast is like women are starting to break out of boxes, trying to break out of these stories what have you learned by working with all these women? I mean, whether it's hopeful or not hopeful, I mean, I'm just so curious to pick your brain on um, what do you think is happening in these times as women are um, starting to shift in a new direction? Yeah, I definitely think there's a long way to go, but I'm definitely optimistic of where it can go. But I think in terms of men versus women, you know, that biologically we are wired differently. And so our brains as women are wired to overthink, to ruminate, to stew, you know, it's um, not as many traffic lights in the intersection as in a, you know, typically male brain. And so, so we are 
um, kind of inclined. And I saw that in my own household. I have an older brother and I was destroyed by my parents' disappointment and my teenage antics. And he wasn't like we were disciplined the same. We had the same experience, but he it was received very differently, you know, by him. I ended up in therapy for 10 years afterwards. <laughs> and Anyway, so like that's one thing that we just have to realize that we're different. And my research shows, and I'm generalizing here, but in general, for women, the self-talk is cruel. And for men, it's critical. And so there's so that's just another difference I've seen in my research, the way we speak to ourselves. A lot of men are like, do better next time, buddy. You know, it's almost encouraging. And for women, it's like you're fat, you're ugly, it's a miracle, your husband loves. I mean, it's awful, mm -hmm. awful. Um, if you go to say like a mother.com, there's this video that shows the way women speak to each other and it's just horrific. Um, so I think we have that going on and somewhat, you know, going against us. And then I think that there's been a narrative, you know, in the United States and around the world that self-care is selfish and women have to put everybody first. And, you know, the mothers have to be the one to do all the cooking. And there's all these narratives that we've just blindly followed, you know, and listened to. And I definitely think there's, um, you know, more power and more momentum in I am going to take time for myself. I am going to you know, explore self-help and um, self-care. But I think for a lot of America, that's not really real right now. And women are still doing two thirds of the unpaid labor at home, you know, whether they're working outside the house or not. And, um, you know, we have a long way to go just for everyone in the family to participate and not have everything fall on the woman, women and mother is why, you know, we're just so, so many women are so exhausted. Yeah. You brought up the video, which is incredibly Profound, powerful yeah. and we will share that with the listeners in the show notes, but what was it like that day to, and I don't know if it was one day that you filmed it, but what was it like to be there and witness that? It was one of the best days of my life. Mm. So, um, the, the, we recruited eight mothers, women to be in a video. They did not know what they were going to be in the video about. They knew it was going to be about motherhood. That's it. We knew that we were going to ask them and they were all strangers to each other. We knew that we were going to ask them to write down the last terrible thing that they said to themselves. So really getting at that negative self-talk and then they, you know, read it to the camera. And what was so fascinating. So I'd already done this, a study like this with 10,000 women, 17 countries, the most horrible self-talk, you know, in the world, just, it's very consistent all around the world. And so um, I was very confident that this is what was going to occur. But what was fascinating was every single individual on the set outside of the mothers who were in the video, myself and the director were men. And so this one guy, knowing the concept of the video, came over to me and said, Catherine, I'm just so fascinated that these strange women are going to, you know, that are strangers to each other are going to show up. And how do you know they're going to have something terrible to say to themselves? And I was like, what? And he's like, I mean, what if they just show up and they're like, I love myself. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, I'm not dude, worried about that. You wait. are not in a female body, sir. Just wait. I was like, I just got kind of confused by the question. I was like, what? You, someone would show up and say something. A woman would show up and say something nice about herself. And um, it's true. It's so true. So he was young and he, and so he, I think he was kind of nervous about the whole thing. And then at the end of the day, he came up to me and he said, the world really needs your book. And he said, I had no idea that this is the way that women speak to themselves. And this is really powerful. Like he was just shocked. Wow. Yeah. Well, we will, we will share that because yeah. it's, it is very powerful and it, and it's really made me think about my own internal narratives and, and what is that story that, you know, continually shows up for me. Mm -hmm. And don't you think it's hard, um, just in general for humans, not even just for women to actually identify the story because, you know, you're having those 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day and you're just in it all the time. It's the, the lake that you're swimming in. And so I think sometimes like that moment you had when your husband said, just be yourself, Catherine. And you're like, <laughs> why would I want to do it? It's like, we don't even know that the story we're telling ourselves is so horrid and negative, but it's showing up in the way we, we overwork and we don't sleep and we 
don't ever do anything for ourselves. And so how, like how I'm just talking in general, how do women start to really begin to even identify the voice of their dragon? I think you, you, you know, your attention has to be called to it. And this conversation might be doing, you know, just that I would say 70% of the women that come to my workshops have never thought about the way they speak to themselves. And so what I do and what, you know, any of the listeners can do right now is take out a piece of paper and write down in your own handwriting, the last terrible thing that you said to yourself. And regardless of what time of day it is when you do it, I can almost guarantee you that you're not going to have to go back to yesterday to think of, you know, an example, but my therapist had me do this so many years ago. And the power is that it's in your own handwriting. Mm. And so when my therapist had me do this, she said, do it right now, write it down. And what I wrote down at the time was you are a poor excuse for a strong woman. And that was the last terrible thing that I had said to myself. And when I saw it in my own handwriting, I was like, this is undeniable. <laughs> this is my handwriting. Like I said this about myself and it was really jarring. And so, you know, I would say just on a little scratch piece of paper in your notes app on a post-it note, when you hear it, write it down. And in the right beginning, now? yeah, I think we should do it right now. Okay like an like an in vitro experiment right now. okay okay is that okay yes you, will you yes. do it too or are we yeah gonna sure of course yeah. okay i'm gonna give you paper cage i need a pen too i'm kind of nervous actually right now so talk again yeah so it's simply the last terrible thing that you said to yourself Okay. All right. Who wants to go first? Well, I shared that I just love my job and by just left, I mean, I'm like 13 days in. (laughs) So mine is you aren't ready to make this move. You don't have Mm -hmm. what it takes. I've already made the move by the way, but (laughs) but the voice is always very helpful, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was the second part? You don't have what it takes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just getting back from teaching a retreat abroad. And my thought this morning is, Betsy, you've got to get back into your life and hold your shit together because people are watching you. And that's like, I'm realizing as I wrote that, that was, that's a heavy burden from childhood of the idea that like people are watching you, they watch you, they're what, and so it's this sense of like, oh, get your shit together. Yeah. Both of your like second sentences are, are very consistent with what I see in all my workshops of very extreme. It's like, when are you going to get your shit together? You're never going to be able to do this. It's very like, they tend to be very sweep. I mean, obviously negative, but also very sweeping and not just limited to this situation. You know, it, it immediately jumps from, I just changed my job to a catastrophic future forever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's but that's the way life. the, um, yeah. you know, so it's, there tend to be very cruel and then also um, very like it's we project, you know, that it, it's kind of glue that's going to stick to everything in mm-hmm. your life. Yeah, it's and a theme. It's a theme like that to me, that theme, like when, when else have I said that you don't have what it takes? Yeah, when I played basketball, when I, you know, all these things, that theme is prevalent throughout my life. Well, that's another great clue is you've just identified, or maybe you knew it before, but like this clear theme. And so then you start to listen for it. And that's when you can start, you're like, wow, it's really, it's how I feel about everything from my cooking to my exercising, to my driving, to my, you know, I mean, it's, or maybe you'll find it's really concentrated in certain areas of your life. Like mine was very concentrated around my career. A lot of my doubt and like second guessing, um, yeah. So I'll, I'll share mine. Um, 
And mine tend to be a little bit less extreme after all the the work, you know. <laughs> that's that's comforting. So, yeah, so that's, they're not quite. They're they're it's very they're not as cruel and they're not as like forward projecting like over everything in my life. So it was just that I have gained probably ten pounds, um, in the recent, um, in recent history. And I, the other day, I was like, think my stomach looked so fat, like just you know better than it had before. But what I do hear it. So I saw myself in the mirror. I heard myself say like, your stomach looks so fat. And then I just said, like, I try to like teach it some manners. And so in that moment, I was like, well, you could go back to the gym, like not as like a criticism, but like, there's something you can technically do about this. If it really bothers, do you know what I mean? And so it was like, I heard it. And then like, I was able to have the last word a little bit so that it wasn't quite as damaging or hurtful. It was more just like a matter of fact, like your stomach is bigger. If, you know, you could just go to the gym, but not in a judgy way. It was, this is fixable, you know, type. Yeah. But I love what we're doing right now is also showing listeners and just helping each other see that there are these different parts to us. Like there's a really, can be really cruel, negative naysayer, But then I love that your other part came in and said, yeah, but there's a solution. There's something you can do about it. And so it's like acknowledging that we, that we're, we're not all doubt or we're not all negativity. It's just a part of us. And to me, that feels really good. Like, okay, there is a part of me that is negative, but I can talk myself down off the ledge. Right. So it's very empowering to realize like, as you said earlier, the chaos is inside and we can do something about it. And this is the outer world. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a refrain. It's like, you're never going to be good enough. It's the same theme, you know, whatever your theme is. And so it does take time to, you know, break that down. But I've even gotten to the point now where sometimes immediately I'll say something like, oh my gosh, you're such a knucklehead or like something like that. And then I just, I'll just kind of laugh. I'm like, geez, that was (laughs) unnecessary. Like, you know, it just, it just like, just burst out, you know, and then, and I'll just sometimes be like, okay, that's not helpful. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's just a neat evolution that, but like I say in the book, your goal should not be to completely get rid of negative self-talk. It's never going to happen. Like we have a lot of negative thoughts that can be, you know, anticipation of something that's going to go wrong and it's helpful to us. You know, it's just, it's never going to go away. So you don't want to beat yourself up about like, Oh, here I go yelling at myself again. Like it's never going to, your goal shouldn't be for it to go away. Your goal should be to hear it and to teach it some manners. Um, and then just move on and then do it again the next time it comes up and then do it again the next time it comes up. And, um, but it's never going to stop coming up. That's not a realistic. Right. Well, we've talked about how your brain in taking risk, your brain tries to protect you. So I also think for women like entrepreneurship and going out on your own and following your own path, there is risk in that. I mean, just innately in, in that process. And so I think for women, especially we're wired, you know, to, to take less risks, you know, perfectionism really is a killer when it comes to being able to take chances. And so, um, for me, I've been really conscious of, you know, that piece of, um, I don't have to have it all figured out. My brain's just trying to protect me. Right. But it's okay that, I don't see the entire picture yet. I, I, it's okay to let it unfold. Thank you brain for trying to protect me. (laughs) Right. I understand that, but I, I can, you know, I can have some faith in this process too. So, um, yeah, it is, I think it's just what our brains are wired to do. Yeah. Catherine, as you've been able to slay your inner dragons and work and heal yourself, I want to, ask how is the external your external life changed so i'm most curious about how friendships partnership relationships have changed as your inner chaos has become more calm more understandable like what is then what's been the external shift in your life that's a good question i would say uh, there were some external things that I changed, you know, like my career, you know, ch- making that like external change was huge. And then once I made that change, a lot of external changes was I started 
eating better. I started working out. I started doing meditation. You know, I had all this extra bandwidth because um, I wasn't putting everything into my career and all my anxiety and self-doubt. And so that, that changed externally, um, which, you know, was huge, but I definitely don't think that anybody that was around me really thought that anything really changed. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that like for those 20 years that I was so riddled with self-doubt, I had a mask on and I projected and personified happiness and joy. And, and, and so I think the biggest evolution is just inside of me. A lot of people outside of, I mean, I certainly have, I have the same friends. I have the same husband, you know, and I don't think that they think that much has changed because I never talked mm-hmm. about how horrible it was inside. And so now my insides match my outsides, but before they could only see the outside. So it's impossible for them to understand how dramatically different my life is because it looks the same and how you feel and how I feel because they would say well you had a successful career before you have a successful career now you did that you know and so they just didn't know that I was running on this treadmill you know inside trying to prove myself and um so I think that's kind of fascinating that you know I don't really have anything to show for this evolution externally. Like Mm. I look the same, like it's, but my whole life and essence and being and soul has been changed and flourished. And, but I have nothing unlike when I was young and I had to have the blue ribbons and I had to have the trophies. It's like, I have nothing to show for this other than deep, deep inner peace. I actually find that is really beautiful. And And, really the new measure of success, right? That it's, you've redefined it for yourself. And that it doesn't actually have to show up. I mean, I was just thinking that such a patriarchal systemic, like white supremacist sort of idea that, um, tell me what it is that has shown up in your life as a result of all this work. And you're like, actually, I don't think anything... No, I mean, shown up. It's yes. all just a shift in me, and just the meritocracy oh. of this country, and that you have to have all of these evidence. titles and trophy yeah, evidence yes. of your worthiness. And if you're not making this much money and you're not doing this, you are somehow less than you know, which is disgusting. And um, yeah, there's a lot of narratives and way ways that our society operates that um, make this discovery quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm. You probably saw in the news yesterday with Jacinda um, Ardern resigning. Um, I was struck by the message that I yeah. love that it sent. Um, I know there's all sorts of criticism maybe out there on the political side of, well, she just thinks she's going to lose. So she's walking mm. away now. But the empowering way she came at this of, I know myself, I don't have enough in the tank. Right. And I'm, I'm going to step back, but yeah. I hope I have shown that leadership is about compassion and you can be kind and strong and all the things she said, it was so amazing. Yeah. I think the more women are willing to like say that out loud, yeah. like I'm making this decision for me and not it's her life, it's her I mean, life, God. it's her life. She has a young child. She's yeah. Just led through a very difficult crisis. Like it really it hit home for me because I've had this guilt and shame about walking away from a position that I should want to keep if I were following societal standards. Right. But I know yeah, it's not that's... me. It doesn't fit me right now anymore. So, um, well, that's when you realize you're leading a double life. That's exactly the point that I got to where people were excited about my career and it's, oh my gosh, it's so neat that you did this and this and this. And the outside of me was like, yes, yes. I was fine. And the inside was like, no, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, you start, that's other, like, that's like another like body compass thing is like when you're responding to someone you know, or answering a question about how you feel about what you're doing and you just feel like you're lying all the time is, you know, a telltale sign that something needs to change. That inauthenticity shows up in your body for sure. 
Well, this has been an incredible interview. So thank you so much for being with us. We, we always like to end with our guests um, with a final question. And, um, you know, our podcast really was built on uh, the premises of the wild woman archetype and the infamous book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. And you certainly, by all definition, are a wild, wild woman. woman. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the author talks about how there are a few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. And if you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it. That is a door. If you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which door do you think you took into your life as a wild woman? I think I went through the I feel unworthy door. I think that was the portal that really changed me, like identifying that I didn't feel worthy and, you know, understanding that that could even be a thing and how did it come about and that. And the more I learned, you know, on my journey, the more I wanted to break free from it and be wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was feeling the, look, you're yearning for a deeper life, a full yeah. life and, and you found it and you are inspiring so many others to find their own way. And yeah, it's very inspiring. We're all going to chew on, let the inner chaos, like work with the inner chaos because mm -hmm. the external will always be there and we can't do anything about it, but gosh, we have control over the inside. So thank you for reminding us of that very powerful truth. Thank you Absolutely. for sharing your wisdom yes. and, and everyone go out and find Catherine's book, Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. It is a really powerful book and encourage you all to pick it up. Catherine, where else can people find your work or come to one of your events? Can you give us some information about that? Yeah, absolutely. You can follow along on um, Say Like a Mother on Instagram or go to saylikeamother.com. And um, in both places, you can sign up for a newsletter we send out that has blog posts and podcasts and um, just articles and just ways to help you keep slaying. Yay. Yay. Well, we'll, we'll keep slaying together. And uh, thank you for inspiring all of us today. And uh, we wish you well. Thank you so much. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris, with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week. Safety.